Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Lots of people make financial resolutions early in a calendar year. Here's one that's easy to follow through on. Life insurance, how much you really need and where to find the best deal. Joining me with some advice, the well-insured Abe Grungold of AG Financial Services. Abe, good to have you back. Thank you. Happy New Year. It's always wonderful to start off the year with a good topic. Yes, thinking about what happens after you die, which was when your life insurance would pay off. But what are your thoughts? Because my understanding is that life insurance requirements change throughout your life cycle. Yeah, life insurance is one of these products that you really need through your life. And I always had life insurance during my federal career because you need to cover the amount of debt that you owe. You need to be able to leave something aside for a funeral, which are very expensive these days. And if you have dependents, you need to set aside money to care for your dependents so they have something. Right. And life insurance takes many forms. I guess for most feds, the most common is the FEGLI, the official federally issued insurance, correct? Yes. FEGLI is insurance that the government immediately signs you up for it when you first are employed. And you actually have to fill out a form to get out of FEGLI. But the good thing about FEGLI is There are no requirements to obtain FEGLI as far as a physical or a questionnaire regarding your health, and you automatically can obtain life insurance. You just have to decide how much life insurance you want, but it can be a little pricey compared to other options that are available outside of the government. And the FEGLI insurance or those outside of the government are basic pay-as-you-go death benefit. They're not whole life. They're not savings types of plans. They're simply term insurance. Well, unfortunately, the companies outside of the government offer all types, universal life, whole life, term life, and many other types of insurance products. I always had my life insurance outside of the government. And I always selected a term life insurance policy, whether I had it per year or I had a 20-year policy. I always felt that term life insurance provided the best life insurance coverage that fit my needs, and it was also very, very affordable. And I had a 20-year term life policy when I got married. I felt that was what was needed for both me and my wife. So term is you pay a monthly or yearly premium and you get a specific death benefit and that's it. There's no more savings associated with it. There's no value in some kind of an annuity policy or anything like the old whole life and similar types of programs. Or I guess they have hybrid programs and universal life and all of these other products. That's correct. There's no cash surrender value. And before I was employed with the government, I had a whole life policy that I had through a company outside of the government. And this was before I started with the government. 
And years into the policy, I saw that it was necessary for me to terminate this type of insurance because it got expensive and it didn't fit my needs. When I had this whole life policy before I started with the government, I felt that it was too expensive and I decided to terminate it once I had it for several years. I saw working for the government, there were other better insurance products out there, more affordable. And so I cashed in that whole life policy. All right. And what about the issue of the amount you actually need as your death benefit? Let's just talk about straight death benefit. You mentioned the elements that go into figuring that. As your income goes up, how do you make sure that your policy keeps up as you move through, say, the GS schedule, you know, and you get higher and higher salaries? Well, you can select, it's called 1X or one times your salary. So as your salary increases each year, the coverage of your insurance also increases. Or you can select 2X or 3X and I have seen a lot of federal employees carry a lot of life insurance. They feel that it's necessary to cover the vast amount of debt from their mortgage and to provide security for their dependents in the event something happens to them. The cost, though, is not linear, right? If you were to double your death benefit, say from half a million to a million, does the premium double or does it go up by a certain percentage? Certainly the premium is going to be much, much more. And insurance at that level may not be affordable for you through a government-sponsored life insurance policies. It would be best if you wanted to have 500000 or a million dollars of life insurance coverage to go outside of the government and obtain a term life insurance policy for those levels of coverage. It'll be much more affordable. Right. So you could go to a WEPA or one of the commercial companies that would have these types of products, and it might give you a better deal than Fegley. Yes. I had a company called Banner Life, and I had $250,000 of life insurance coverage, and it only cost me $300 a year. And it was a 20-year policy. I could not beat that type of coverage, quality coverage. You want a quality life insurance company. And you want coverage that is going to be there for you, regardless of how well the company is doing. That's very important. You have to get a company that has a good rating. So, yes, I had that policy and I kept it until I reached retirement. And then I decided I didn't need life insurance anymore. Uh, I didn't have any debt, fortunately for me. And it just wasn't something that my wife and I discussed that we were going to continue with. Because at that point, it became much, much, much more expensive. Right. So you need to then reevaluate almost annually, you would say. Yes. When you get into your 60s, Life insurance triples and quadruples all the way up to very large premium amounts. But some people still feel it's a good investment because to save 
yet premium every year, they feel that it's worth the gamble to pay the premium and to have that life insurance in the event something happens to them. And Fegley does not go with you into retirement, correct? Fegley does go with you into retirement. You do get, uh, at age 65, you do get $10,000 worth of free coverage when you reach age 65. But if you still want to continue Fegley as a federal retiree, yes, you can continue it. You just pay the premium. And unfortunately, the premium will go up as you get older. And $10,000 for free doesn't buy you much, frankly. If you, you know, <laughs> No, it, it barely gets you a pine box, I hate to say. Yeah. But it's something very, very important about life insurance. Very important, Tom. And that you must have a beneficiary for your life insurance policy, and you must communicate with that beneficiary to let them know that a life insurance policy exists. Because many times people pass away and there's no one to contact the insurance company to say, you know, this person passed away. The insurance company is not going to contact you. You have to contact them. And in many, many situations, and I know with uh, Fegley, you have to provide a certified death certificate. That's very important. Otherwise, they won't pay it out. Yeah, so whoever's left over has to take care of all those details, and they have to know that they have to take care of them, in other words. Yeah, so you, you have to be the beneficiary, and you have to prove that this person passed away. The insurance company is not going to do that for you. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. Thanks so much, as always. Thank you, Tom, for having me on today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.